Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 15. This is a pretty amazing chapter just in terms of the sheer number of potential themes, doctrines, topics that are all packed in here. Uh, You really could do four or five sermons on this text. I'm not sure we're going to do that many, Uh, but today we are only going to cover verses 1 through 9, and so that's what we're going to read. Hear now the words of the Lord. Then Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them into Lame, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the ox and the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them all. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. We'll stop there. Let's pray. Lord, it's been asked several times now that you would please accompany your word. And as was said in the call to worship, because you have not changed, we have confidence that you intend to do just that. And so we ask once again for your Holy Spirit to come and illuminate the scriptures as only he can do. We thank you that we have so great a Savior and a salvation that unites us together in this room on this day. We love you, Lord. We ask this for the sake of your Son. Amen. Philip came to Nathanael and said to him, We have found the one whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. For all the promises of God are in him, yes, and in him, amen. I hope you believe that. And I hope that this sermon challenges you today to believe that afresh. And I hope it models for you how we are to handle the Old Testament in the light of the truths that I just quoted. The scriptures testify of one message concerning one glorious person. Not just a portion of scripture, all of scripture, including this text. So then, with that reminder in place, I want you to wade into today's passage by considering the narrative arc of Saul's life that we have seen thus far. This will be our our recap. The Israelites failed to complete the conquest of the land, which was a prerequisite for the rise of the kingship in Israel. But having failed, they had the audacity to come and to demand a king anyway. And God promised to raise one up. But because of their disobedience, the matter of the kingship would not be quite so simple and smooth as it should have been. God would indeed give them a king, but he was going to be a king like the nations, one who was cruel and self-centered and war-hungry. Yet, at the same time, God would use this king to sustain Israel's existence by protecting the nation from ultimate destruction at the hand of her enemies. So God raises up Saul of Benjamin. He anoints him king and commissions him to destroy the Philistines. But right away he shows cowardice by refusing to attack that garrison of Philistines at Gibeah and by hiding behind the baggage when he was called uh, to step boldly forward and assume the throne. And therefore we began his reign with a little bit of an uneasy feeling that things were not quite right as they should have been. 
But then in chapter 11, the Spirit of God rushes upon Saul when Nahash the serpent attacks Israel and questions the word of God and enables Saul to save the people. So he defeats the enemy. And so we leave that text thinking, okay, well, maybe there is hope that Saul will redeem himself. And sure enough, God gives him one more chance at redemption to correct his initial failure of defeating the Philistines and establishing the kingship. And God does so by bringing 30,000 Philistine chariots against Saul at Gilgal. So the enemy were once again before him. All he had to do was show that he would submit to the Lord's word in the establishment of the kingdom by waiting to receive directions on how to defeat the Philistines from God's prophet. But he again gives in to fear, and he decides to offer the sacrifice according to his own wisdom. And so Samuel rebukes him and tells him that his line is rejected. And as a result of that rebuke, though our hopes are a bit dwindled, we are still left thinking, okay, he's received a formal correction of his ways. Maybe now Saul will get it. Maybe now he will repent and turn to the Lord and salvage what is left of his reign. But then the last chapter that we looked at showed us that even after being rebuked, Saul refused to repent. And he continued to live according to the principle of man's religion, controlling God through external obediences. And so we watched somberly as Saul carried out the cruel tyranny of man's religion. He bound his soldiers with an oath of asceticism. They, they should not eat or drink until the Philistines were destroyed, nearly starving them. Then when the people defiled themselves by eating the blood of animals, he built an altar to offer sacrifices because he was afraid that their disobedience would hinder his ability to obtain what he wanted from God even though they had only eaten the blood because of the desperation caused by his religious oath. Then after having to be reminded by the priest to do so, Saul then inquired of the Lord about whether he should even continue his pursuit of the Philistines. And after being met with silence from God, he swore a vow to the Lord that he would kill anyone it took to get a response from the Almighty. And as a result of this, righteous Jonathan was almost murdered, and the people had to commit an act of civil defiance against their king in order to stem the tide of his madness. And so we left that last chapter having gained the following insights into the heart of Saul. He thinks that external zeal and formality will suffice before the bar of God's judgment rather than a lovingly obedient heart. He has utterly failed to be the king of blessing that the old prophecies foretold. And last chapter ended with a summary of the rest of his life and of his warring. Now, if you had not read 1 Samuel before, and we arrived at this point in the story, where it's abundantly clear that Saul is not the king that God will use to build his temple in which he will set his presence, then after we concluded chapter 14 with that short summary of the rest of Saul's life, you would probably think, all right, it seems like the narrative is now ready to shift us away from Saul and to start preparing us for how God will resolve the matter of this failed kingship. Surely we have seen enough now to know Saul ain't it. And for those of you who know this book, you know that is what's coming. The text is going to shift its focus away from Saul to the man whom God will raise up as his replacement. And the start of this chapter, chapter 15... Seems like the perfect place to do it. We've beat the drumbeat of Saul's failures to death. What more do we need to see from him? And yet, that's not what we get. The Spirit of God saw fit to record for us one more episode where Saul, not David, is still the focus. And by the end of this sermon, I hope you'll see why. Now, all of our focus on Saul to this point has surrounded his failure to launch, his failure to successfully inaugurate the kingdom and kingship that God intended for Israel. He's not fulfilled the tasks that God established or prescribed for establishing the kingdom of glory. It's all been about his failure to get things started. But in today's story, we're going to flash forward in time a little bit to a later point in Saul's reign, and the story is going to complete this picture of Saul's failure. Because today we're going to see not his failure to inaugurate or establish the kingdom, but to consummate or complete it. Because in this story, God, for reasons that are reserved for his own wisdom, saw fit to commission Saul with a task that he, God, had already designated as the crowning achievement of the king who would consummate his kingdom 
on the earth. And that task was this, to execute God's total judgment on those who had persecuted His people during their pilgrimage to Sabbath rest. Saul has failed as the inaugurating liberator, if you will, of God's kingdom. In today's text, he's going to fail as its consummating avenger. So then, I've broken the first nine verses into two sections. We're going to see first God's commission, and secondly, Saul's omission. Let's look first at God's commission. This will be verses 1 to 3. Now, this first heading is going to take up, by far, the largest portion of the sermon. Take a look at verse 1. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. In the first verse, God begins his directives by reminding Saul of what he is. He is the Lord's anointed. He is still, as of right now, the king. You might say, wait a minute. I thought that he was no longer the king. Didn't Samuel say that God had rejected him? After his unlawful sacrifice in chapter 13, well, that's a common misreading of that text. What Samuel actually said to him was this, You have acted foolishly, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. Saul's punishment was that his kingdom would not continue forever after him. How does a kingdom continue on forever after someone? If there is a dynasty of sons who succeed their father and pass on the kingdom. So you see, the the penalty for Saul's sacrifice was that he would not have a dynasty of sons ruling on Israel's throne forever. But God did not say to him, technically speaking, you, Saul, are no longer the king right now. He said, your throne will not continue through the ages. In other words, God has given him a dynastic curse at this point. And it's important that you recognize that so that we can distinguish between the punishment that Saul got in chapter 13 and the punishment that he's going to get later on in this text. So, Saul is still the anointed king. God says so right here. He is doomed to be a one-generation king, but he's not lost his personal status as the Lord's anointed. Not yet. And to understand the significance of the task that God is about to give to Saul and the significance of his failure, you have to see that God begins here by reasserting what Saul is. He is the king. That's verse 1, and it's going to frame the entirety of our text. Then in verse 2, God begins to lay out the task he has for Saul. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now before we get a little bit further into this, I want to first draw your attention to that phrase, devote to destruction. That is a technical term in Hebrew, which, if literally translated, would be put them under the ban. Our English translations uh, try to bring out the meaning of that idea by translating it as devote to destruction, but literally it's put them under the ban. And most of your Bibles will probably have a note that that phrase indicates that something being put under the ban means that God is marking it out as something that is to be given to Him as an offering by destruction to His justice. When God puts something under the ban, he's saying, that thing, that over there, that's mine. Remember that term, the ban. So then, the task is fairly straightforward. Go find the Amalekites and destroy them. But this is another one of those occasions where it's easy to read the text, feel like we get the general gist of what it is saying to us, and then move along, all right? For some reason, God is commanding another round of war between Israel and an ancient people group. Seems to be a lot of that in the Old Testament, and so I guess God just felt like doing it all over again. But God is not a God of random actions or commands. There is rich meaning and intentionality behind what God is commanding Saul to do here. And that meaning is wrapped up in the significance of the nation of Amalek and their relationship to Israel. So then, who are these Amalekites? Well, technically speaking, the Amalekites are descendants of Esau. Esau, the Amalek, was Esau's grandson. You may remember in Genesis chapter 36 that Esau and his, at that time, large family left the land of Canaan with all the possessions that they had acquired within the land. And they went to live in a neighboring territory, which they named Edom. Now, why name it Edom? 
Because Edom was another name given to Esau that Esau received when he asked his brother Jacob for some red stew. Uh, Edom means red in Hebrew. And some of Esau, or Edom's descendants, stayed in this new land that bordered Canaan. They became known as the Edomites, naturally. But some smaller sections of Esau's family sort of spread out and established their own tribes and territories. Amalek was one of them. He and his descendants started to move back a little bit in the direction of Egypt, into the the land that would one day be apportioned to Judah. And they, of course, became known as the Amalekites. Now, when the Israelites came out of Egypt, God had promised them the land of Canaan, but they had to travel to it. And one of the routes that runs from Egypt to the promised land passes directly through the land of the Amalekites. And so it's no surprise that after the Red Sea episode, Israel and the Amalekites encounter one another. We read about it in Exodus chapter 17. And the context is crucial here. Pay attention. God destroys Pharaoh's armies. Moses extols God's victory in a song and declares that God is fulfilling the promises he made to Abraham by bringing his offspring out of bondage and into the promised land from which the Messiah will come. And after this song, God proceeds to sustain and care for Israel as they travel through the wilderness. He begins, does God, by making the bitter waters of Marah turn sweet as Moses tosses that log or that tree into them so that Israel may drink. He then leads Israel to the oasis of Elim where he nourishes them with 12 springs of water in the shade of 70 palm trees. And then shortly thereafter, he feeds them with the manna from heaven in chapter 16. And from there, Israel moves to a place called Rephidim, where they realize, once again, they are in need of water. And so the angel of God, who I would say is Christ pre-incarnate, proclaims that he will stand upon a rock that Moses must strike. And when Moses does so, water rushes forward to sustain the nation in their hard pilgrimage. Now at this point, it's only been a short time since they left Egypt, and yet God has been relentlessly working. He's vindicating His Word. He's manifesting His glory. He's defeating His enemies. He's marching His people toward their promised inheritance, and He is demonstrating that He is the bread and the water upon which they will live. And all of that initial redemptive work of God culminates in Israel standing at Rephidim and God opening this rock of living waters. The rock which was to follow and sustain them for 40 years. The rock which Paul tells us was Christ. Rephidim was one of the highest moments of the revelation of the saving work of the Messiah in types and shadows in the Old Testament. And anyone watching should have marveled at the signs and the wonders that God was doing in their midst. And yet, as Israel finishes nourishing themselves on the water which Christ has provided, we read this, then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Now that was a battle where Moses and Aaron and Hur are on the top of the mountain and they're holding Moses' arms up and Joshua is leading the armies to fight down below. And of course, God gives them victory. But why would Amalek choose to attack Israel at this location as they're on their way to the promised land? From what we can tell, Rephidim was not actually in the territory of the Amalekites, strictly speaking. So why come out and attack them? Well, here's where knowing your Old Testament family relations is rather helpful. Remember, Amalek is Esau's grandson. Esau was the oldest of the twins born to Isaac, Abraham's son. Now, God had promised the land of Canaan and the line of the Messiah to Abraham, right? I trust we're all familiar with that. Those promises then ran through his son Isaac. As the scripture said, through Isaac, your offspring, the Christ, shall be named. So now Isaac has the promises. He's got them. They're his. And then he has twins, Esau and Jacob. And since Esau is the older of the two twins, then those promises of inheriting Canaan and fathering the one who will bless the nations were Esau's natural birthright. But what happened to Esau's birthright? He sold it. He traded it to his younger twin Jacob for a bowl of soup. Jacob took advantage of Esau's famous condition when he returned from hunting, and Jacob got the rights to Canaan. 
And as a result of this, Esau and his descendants, which include the Amalekites, leave the land of Canaan and they go live on its border. But they know still that the birthright of inheriting Canaan was originally theirs. And it is undoubtedly the case, if you know anything about human nature, that they thought they had lost this inheritance through the illegitimate and uh, conniving deceptions of great-uncle Jacob. And so for hundreds of years, the whole identity of the Edomites and the Amalekites, Esau's offspring, was formed around the belief that Canaan was their land. They were cheated out of it. Now, they know that technically the land was promised to Jacob's descendants, the Israelites. But conveniently enough, those people are stuck down in Egypt under the oppressive thumb of the most powerful man in the world. They're not coming out of there anytime soon. But now, all of a sudden, the Amalekites get word that something unimaginable has happened. Their distant kinsmen have escaped from Egypt and are making a direct beeline for the land that the Amalekites believe is rightfully theirs. They refuse to recognize that it was Esau's wickedness in despising the promise of the Messiah that had led to the loss of his birthright. And ultimately, as Paul later tells us, it was God's sovereign choice to give the inheritance to Jacob that was behind all of this. God had made his will very clear in this matter in the days of the patriarchs. The older will serve the younger. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. And God was vindicating that will by bringing Jacob's offspring out of Egypt and into the land, not Esau's. But the Amalekites don't concern themselves with God's plan to accomplish redemption and to bring the Christ into the world. All they can think of is the fact that they want that land. And so they march out to confront the redeemed people who are being led toward their inheritance by the angel of God and the pillar of cloud and fire. And it's not just the carnal lusts of the Amalekites that are at war here. Ultimately, this is Satan working through these people. Esau was of his father, the devil, and so are his offspring. And all of Satan's attention since Genesis 3, as I trust you know, has been on preventing the seed of the woman from coming into the world. And Satan knows that the offspring of Abraham, according to the flesh, have to be set up, formed, and protected as a distinct people in the promised land in order for the Messiah to come from that line. The struggles between Jacob and Esau as individuals and between their biological descendants, the Israelites and the Amalekites, were ultimately an outworking of the struggle between the seed of the woman and the serpent. So uh, Satan brings the Amalekites out to oppose the fulfillment of God's promises, just as he did with Pharaoh, whom the prophets will later refer to as the Leviathan, the serpent of Egypt, just as he did with Balak and Balaam and their witchcraft, and with Jonas and Jambres and their opposition to Moses. So he is now doing with Amalek. The Amalekites, in other words, are anti-Christ. They are warring against God's beloved son and his coming, his parousia in history. And God takes that very seriously. So then, back to the battle. Israel defeats Amalek. And at the end of the battle, the Lord instructs Moses to, quote, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name, Yahweh is my banner, saying, The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. God promised to war with Amalek and to blot them out forever. But that wasn't even God's last word concerning Amalek in the wilderness. Forty years later, 40 years later, as the people are about to enter the promised land, Moses gathers the next generation of Israelites, Deuteronomy 25, and he says this to him: Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you when you were faint and weary and cut off from your tail those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies in the land that the Lord is giving you, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. Now, why the comparatively harsh response against Amalek? Israel fought with lots of people groups in the Old Testament. Why did Amalek get singled out for this kind of ultimate and long-term destruction? Because ever since our first parents fell into sin, God has been running a straight line of promises of redemption in His Son from Adam to Noah to Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to David and ultimately 
to Christ. And Amalek put themselves right in the middle of that straight line of promises and said, not on our watch. You will not come into this promised land. There will be no messianic kingdom here. This people was especially used by Satan to thwart the accomplishment of the salvation that we here in this room adore and possess. And so God says, you write down, you inscribe it in your memory. Don't you forget the abomination of the Amalekites. You will wipe out every trace of them. That is the biblical testimony concerning the Amalekites, and you cannot understand today's text without it. Now, before we return to 1 Samuel 15, I want to ask you one more question that I think will further illuminate what is happening here. God swore that he would destroy Amalek. In fact, he was so determined that they should be destroyed that he had Moses write a command in inspired scripture that Israel should never forget what they had done. But if God was so determined to blot out Amalek, then why did God not wipe them out way back then? Why did God not have Israel go and finish them off during all the battles that they fought under Moses or during the initial conquest of the land under Joshua? Think about it. When Israel carried out that conquest, God had them go in and slay a lot of different people groups, but Amalek wasn't one of them. Even after they had conquered the land, could God not have sent any of the judges to go and carry out this task? God enabled the judges to kill vast numbers of Israel's enemies, and the Amalekites didn't go anywhere. They're still right there throughout that whole period of the judges, yet God did not have them destroyed for those 400 years. Or could he not have done it through Samuel during the many decades where he was the head of Israel as prophet and judge? God gave Samuel many victories. Why did God not commission him to strike the final blow to the Amalekites? God said he would do it. And his purposes didn't change through all that time. He had many opportunities to send somebody to fulfill this thing. But he waits hundreds of years, and he gives the task to Saul. How do we explain that? Well, is there anything that is unique about Saul that was not, for example, true of any of the other men that we just mentioned, Moses, Joshua, the judges, or Samuel? Yes, there is. He is the first king. And is that not how God started this chapter? by reminding him, you are the king, the anointed one of Israel. And what have we seen? This is where I, you know, I get happy when the scriptures build upon each other and we can walk through it together chapter by chapter. Have we not seen in previous sermons, going all the way back to chapter 8, what happened when Israel demanded a king? That the purpose of the king was to establish a rest for the people of God. To, I know it's becoming a drumbeat, but I want it in your head. To conquer the land ascend the mountain, build the temple, and usher the people into God's Sabbath rest. The king and the rest are intimately connected with one another. And if you were paying careful attention when I read Moses' command to Israel back in Deuteronomy 25, you might have noticed that God actually gave Israel a time marker for when they were to strike the Amalekites. Let me read it to you again. Moses said, Therefore... When the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies in the land, then you go and blot out Amalek from under heaven. When this, then this. When the rest of the kingdom is at hand, then you go after the Amalekites. Do you see that? In God's mind, the accomplishment of Israel's rest on the one hand and the slaughter and the judgment of the Amalekites had to coincide with one another. And here's the reason why. The scriptures teach that God has a people. And that he intends for that people to dwell with him in a state of rest. But before the Sabbath can be established, the people must complete a wilderness journey to the land of that rest as pilgrims in the midst of their enemies. They will be hated, persecuted, and martyred by those enemies along the way. But God will appoint a king to secure their establishment in the land. And the means by which the king will make safe the state of everlasting rest between God and His people is by destroying those who persecuted them during their pilgrimage. We've already seen in previous sermons that it was the job of God's holy king to consummate that kingdom by capturing the mountain and building the temple, but now we are seeing that there was supposed to be another component to His work. Endowed with the Spirit of the Lord, he was to make the kingdom forever secure by riding forth and delivering the final blow of God's judgment to the satanic enemies, the dogs 
who dwelt outside the kingdom and who had opposed God's people in their pilgrimage to rest. In other words, the reason that God did not have Moses slay the Amalekites or Joshua or any of the judges is because the slaughter of the Amalekites was supposed to happen in conjunction with the attainment of rest in Canaan. And that job was reserved for the king. Now we have our first king. And lo and behold, God comes to him and says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom is at hand, go slaughter the Amalekites. That is Saul's task. But of course, sin has made things a little bit messy. Much of what I just described to you was the plan that God laid out in the Pentateuch for how the kingdom of Israel was supposed to progress from its inception in Egypt to its climax in the land. But the people didn't complete the conquest. So the kingship was delayed for hundreds of years. God had to raise up judges. And even when God does raise up Saul as king, he is a king of blessings and curses because of the people's disobedience. And so Saul too disobeys, and he fails to drive out the inhabitants from the land, such as the Philistines, and he fails to ascend Mount Zion. And now his line has been cut off because of his rebellion. So Saul should have received this task of slaying the Amalekites in the context of having built the temple. Destroying them should have been the crowning achievement of his reign and the sealing of the Sabbath rest that God intended for Israel. And yet, even though Saul has disobeyed time and time again, no temple has been built, no mountain established, no Sabbath rest inaugurated, God still comes to Saul and gives him one last chance to act like the holy king of glory, delivering the final and decisive judgment against the enemies of God. Do you see how much significance is wrapped up in just the first few verses, in the task that God gives to Saul? The entire purpose of the history of Israel is connected to the slaughter of the Amalekites. That is the story that we are entering into. So then, that's the first point, God's commission. Let's see briefly now in the second point, Saul's omission. We read in verse 4, So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim. 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men in Judah. Now notice the massive shift in the size of Saul's army. The, The last time we saw them, there were only 600 who remained who had not fled from the Philistines. Now he's got over 200,000. The events of this text are probably many years removed from the last chapter. Much time has gone by in Saul's reign. Remember the scriptures tell us he reigned for 40 years. Much of that time is not recorded for us. But the end of the last chapter told us about all of Saul's military exploits, all the the people groups that he warred with throughout his reign. And that only makes sense if his army is able to grow in size over the years. So, of course, it's not shocking that we come here and we read of a large number of soldiers. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with a large and a strong army. But remember that in Scripture, men are often tempted to take pride in the size of their armies. David fell into that temptation and numbering the men of Israel in 2 Samuel 24. And notice here it says, it borrows the language from 2 Samuel 24, Saul numbered his men just as David did. Now we were already told at the end of chapter 14 that Saul began attaching himself to anyone he saw who he considered to be a a strong or a mighty man. His infatuation with raw power seems to be increasing. So this verse right here, verse 4, is probably meant to show us that Saul is growing proud of his army and is relying less and less on the word of the Lord. So then, having secured an accounting of the size of his army, proud Saul now begins to carry out his orders. He knows exactly where Amalek is located, and so he takes his forces there in verse 5 and settles them down in an adjacent valley. He finds a good striking point, a good base of operations, and settles his forces. But according to verse 6, there's a little complication that needs to be overcome before the assault can begin. Samuel told him to slaughter the Amalekites. But the Amalekites are not the only ones living in this city. There's another group of people called the Kenites. And unlike the Amalekites, the Kenites were kind to Israel when they left Egypt. For example, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, was a Kenite. And he advised Israel in the wilderness. And he helped to establish Moses' leadership when he was struggling to handle the burden of ruling the entire nation. And then according to Numbers 10, the Kenites actually 
traveled with Israel through the wilderness so that they could advise them on things like where should we camp and where would be a, a safe place to rest where our enemies cannot get us and where can we find provisions. Now the point of the attack in this chapter is to bring judgment on those who had opposed the fulfillment of God's promises. The Kenites had supported God's promises, so they need to be protected. Therefore, we read in verse 6, And Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart. Go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. Very well. The stage is set. The wheat has been separated from the tares, and the, the time for divine threshing has come. Saul, the Lord's anointed, has only to wield his sword and execute the sentence of death. And for a moment, it seems like he actually may have succeeded. Verses 7 to 8 say, And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Hivala as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. Hallelujah. God's vengeance has been vindicated through His anointed holy king. All the Amalekites are destroyed. Well, except one, but just one. He killed all the others, and that pretty much fulfills the task that God gave him, right? Well, we get to verse 9, and the narrator brings some problems to our attention. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen and the fattened calves and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Now there is an incredible amount of significance here in the idea of plunder and inheritance and the difference between when God tells them that they can take plunder and that they can't, and that would be a whole sermon in and of itself. So I'm going I'm to pass over that a little bit. So focusing here on the Amalekites themselves, Saul slaughtered the Amalekites generally. But what was the Lord's specific command? Go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. In other words, leave nothing that breathes, man or beast. And Saul left one man and a number of animals or beasts alive. But didn't he succeed in painting the general picture of judgment that God wanted him to? I mean, imagine that you could have gone and watched this scene. Think of all the dead Amalekites. Picture yourself walking through the city and seeing the bodies of women and teenagers and adolescents and young infants cut open and strewn all over the ground. It would be graphic, about as graphic a picture of judgment as you could hope for. Only one man made it out of an entire city alive and only a few little animals, which most of us wouldn't think about at all. Are we really going to make a big deal about that? Well, besides the fact that any deviation from the commandments of the Lord is sin, what was the whole point of the assault? To paint a picture of what happens to those who persecute and oppose God's people, the apple of His eye, as they journey to dwell with Him forever. To paint a picture that there is no dawn for such people, that there's not even a sliver of hope that they might escape in the great day of God's wrath, that the destruction of the wicked will be complete and entire. The scriptures make this very clear. Yet a little while, and the wicked will be no more. You will look for him in his place, but he will not be there. Transgressors will be all together destroyed. The posterity of the wicked will be cut off entirely. How the wicked are destroyed in a moment, utterly swept away by sudden terror. Not a partial destruction, total destruction. And you can only paint that picture of total destruction if you wipe out every bit of them. But Saul spares Agag. And this is not the first time that Saul has spared a worthless man or worthless men that should have been marked out for destruction. Remember back in chapter 11, he failed to kill the sons of Belial, the sons of worthlessness, when every other son of Belial in the Old Testament is specifically marked out for death and receives it. There is something in Saul that seems to sympathize with something in the wicked, especially men who have a reputation of power and strength. Remember, Saul attached himself to any strong man that he saw. Agag is a fierce and a strong man. Samuel tells us at the end of the chapter that he has made many women childless 
with his sword. He's a man of power in the world's eyes. So Saul spares him. And that shows us where Saul's loyalties lie, with the serpent over the Messiah. The reason that the execution of the Amalekites was so important to God was because their execution symbolized the victory of Messiah over the serpent. The Messiah intends to bring a people to dwell with him forever in a land of rest. The serpent opposes the Messiah by trying to prevent those people from reaching that rest. The serpent versus the Messiah. Saul had no love for the Messiah. So he did not remember the importance of slaying the Amalekites as God commanded. Perhaps if he had had a copy of the book of the law laid up in front of him that he read from day and night as God had instructed in Deuteronomy 17, he would have been well versed in the significance of the Amalekites. And then when God came to him and told him to slaughter them, he would have known exactly how seriously God took this. But he does not love the Lord. It's all about him and what he thinks will be best for his reign of power, making alliances with the enemies of God. So he fails. He fails to paint the picture that God intended to display for the world, that the king who will consummate the state of rest between the Lord and his people will do so by crushing the enemies who opposed them as they sought rest. Saul has now completed the totality of his failure. God had established a series of actions from start to finish that should characterize his holy king, and Saul has failed at every point along the chain. He failed to rid the land of unclean inhabitants. He failed to take the mountain. He failed to build the temple. He failed to establish the Sabbath rest. He failed to bring the people into the presence of God, and now he has failed to bring judgment on the satanic hordes who persecuted the sojourners in the wilderness. That's the reason why this chapter is here. You now have seen all that Israel's king was supposed to be and do. And as a result, you are now ready to appreciate when God raises up a faithful king after his own heart. Saul was faithless. But does his faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? May it never be. Because even if Saul had succeeded in painting the picture of judgment that God wanted him to portray, if he had left none of the Amalekites alive, even then, such a judgment would have only been a temporal model and foreshadowing of a greater plan that God had for the ultimate king, whose reign was not going to be limited to geographical and genealogical Israel, or to delivering temporal judgments and temporal salvations, but would instead bring those types and shadows to their most glorious fulfillment. Because before Israel ever came into existence, and long after they were swept away in judgment, God still has a people. And they still have enemies. They still need a king. And they are still seeking rest. And therefore it is no surprise that as the Old Testament continues to unfold and progress from this point forward, God's prophets keep proclaiming that God will raise up a man to meet that need who will inaugurate eternity by crushing the enemies of God's people. And who are those enemies? Those who love wickedness and hate righteousness. Hence, Psalm 101 places these words in the mouth of God's true king. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart will be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not suffer. I will look with favor on the faithful in the land that they may dwell with me. He who walks in a way that is blameless shall minister to me. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies will continue before my eyes. Morning by morning, I will destroy the wicked from the earth, cutting off all evildoers from the city of the Lord. Do you hear that? That's God's king speaking. His heart is with God's people. He loves them. And what does he oppose? He opposes those who hate God's people. And what has God commissioned him to do? 
to slaughter and to cut off the wicked from the earth, morning by morning. And that was written after Saul died. It seems like God still intends for someone to fulfill Saul's failure, for someone to judge the wicked from all the nations. Isaiah agrees. I want you to hear this extended quotation and let it sink in. Draw near, O nations, to hear and give attention. O peoples, let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against their host. He has devoted them to destruction. That's our phrase, devoted to destruction. Place them under the ban. Isaiah is saying that God has appointed a day in which not just the Amalekites, but all the enemies of God's people from all nations will be placed under a ban of total annihilation. He has devoted them to destruction. He has given them over for slaughter. Their slain will be cast out, and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. Their host shall fall as leaves from a vine. Like leaves falling from a fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon a people I have devoted to destruction. The Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood, gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats and the fat and kidney of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Bozrah, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Oxen shall fall with them, young steers and mighty bulls, speaking of their warriors, Their land shall drink its fill of blood, and the soil shall be gorged with their fat. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Do you hear that? The reason for this is for the cause of God's people. For Zion, streams of Edom shall be turned to pitch, her soil into sulfur. Her land will become a burning fire. Night and day it will not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation. The same phrase that God used in devoting the Amalekites to destruction. It shall lay waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. So Isaiah tells us quite clearly, the enemies of God's people will be placed under the ban, given over as a sacrifice of destruction to the justice of God, so that God's people may be brought to rest with Him. But then we ask, Isaiah, who is going to do this? Who's going to carry out this ban? God gave Joshua the charge of putting Jericho and all that was in it under the ban in Joshua chapter 6. Same same thing. Devote all of them to destruction. And Joshua was not able to ensure that it was completely carried out against Jericho because Achan stole things that were devoted to the Lord. Saul defiantly failed to execute the ban against Amalek. We've struggled to implement this ban on a small scale, but now, Isaiah, you're predicting that God's enemies from all nations will be given under the divine ban. That's a big task. And we're going to need someone who will be mightier than Joshua and Saul to do this. You're a prophet, Isaiah. Do you have any insight that God will, in fact, give His people someone powerful enough to do this on their behalf? And Isaiah says, Who is this? Who comes from Edom, in crimsoned garments from Bozrah, he who is splendid in apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. Who is this? It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red? Why are your garments like one who treads in a winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. I trod them in my anchor and trampled them in my wrath. Their blood spattered on my garments and stained all my clothing. For a day of vengeance was in my heart, and the year of redemption has come. I trampled the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood upon the earth. Yes, Isaiah says, God will provide a strong man to trample his wine press. That's the expectation of the prophets. Then we come to the New Testament. And the mystery hidden from all ages is revealed. 
that Israel and their kingdom and their rest in Canaan and their priesthood and their animal sacrifices and their temple were never the end goal, that they, of course, pointed to a greater reality, that God was not just interested in providing salvation from the swords of ancient people and from famines that struck Israel's crops, but that it was in God's heart to provide salvation from His own wrath and eternal life and eternal rest. And that the Gentiles, not just the Jews, were going to be made fellow heirs, partakers of this great blessing. That both kinds of men would be brought into the same body, the true Israel of God, the church. And wouldn't you know it, the history of Israel and the things that they needed on an earthly and a carnal level were actually a model, a story for how the church and the things that she needs on a greater level will unfold. Israel bought from bondage and slavery to a tyrannical Pharaoh. But Christ says He has come to bind and slay not merely a man like Pharaoh, but the ancient serpent, and to set His people free, not from the chains of Egyptian metalsmiths, but from sin and death and hell. And just as Israel had to sojourn in the wilderness on their way toward promised rest, so the New Testament recognizes that the church in her current existence is in her pilgrimage toward heavenly rest. The book of Hebrews looks back at the Israelites traversing through the wilderness and it says to the church, you are also traveling to a land of rest. Do not fall away as they did. You keep pressing forward, clinging to the Lord Jesus by faith. You are walking in the greater fulfillment of what Israel pictured. And just as Israel was afflicted and persecuted by enemies on her way to Canaan's land, So the scriptures recognize that the church will be persecuted, martyred, and beset on all sides by enemies who want to crush her as she seeks her heavenly country. Paul preached on this back in the book of Revelation, chapter 12. We read that after Satan fails to destroy the Christs in Christ's time on earth, Satan then turns his attention to the saints of the Most High. Chapter 12, verse 5, So she, the people of God, gave birth to a male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But the child was caught up to God in his throne. He ascended into the heavens. And the woman, the church, fled into the wilderness, just as Israel did, where she has a place prepared by God where she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went to make war on the rest of her offspring. Those who keep the commandments of God and hold fast to the testimony of Jesus. You see it? Christ frees His people from bondage. He ascends to heaven. His church begins her wilderness pilgrimage where she is kept, as Paul used the language, kept and protected, but also persecuted and assaulted. So then what does she need? If the pattern that we have seen from today's text holds true, then she needs her king to inaugurate her eternal rest by slaying her enemies that beset her in the wilderness. She needs the one spoken of by the prophets who will tread the winepress of the fury of God Almighty upon her enemies. Does she have such a king? John answers with an emphatic yes. Then I saw heaven open, and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes War. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Now that's enough for me, but John has more. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to the birds that fly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains and of mighty men, and the flesh of the horse and riders and of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him sitting on the horse and his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet in whose presence it had done many signs and wonders by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast 
These two were thrown alive into the lake which burns with fire and sulfur. And here we go. The rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Now that's graphic. But it teaches us this. The church is hated and persecuted as she seeks her heavenly city. But Christ, our holy king, has promised us a Sabbath rest. And the great assurance of Scripture is that he's going to bring that rest to pass by offering up as a sacrifice to God's justice, by putting under the ban those who opposed his church in this age. So then, the application. In light of this great reality, that all of the enemies of God's people will be judged, live in such a way that ensures that Christ will have something to avenge on your behalf. Now, I'm not telling you to go out and get confrontational with the unbelievers around you. What I am telling you is that you don't have to seek out enmity with the unbelievers around you. If you live godly in Christ Jesus, the unbelievers are going to bring that enmity to you. If you live as a Christian, as a person who loves the Lord his God and refuses to join the scorners and the scoffers and the profane and the foolish men of this world in their daily lusts, then you will be the target of their jeers and their anger and their hatred. The Amalekites did not have any trouble identifying their target. They looked and saw quite clearly that over there, that is a people who are journeying as if they believe that God is the inheritance waiting for them at the end. And when they saw that, when they saw the people clearly on the pilgrimage to the land of rest, then they attacked them. And when you live faithfully as a Christian in this world, you will not have to go seeking warfare with unbelievers. They will bring it to you. God has promised it. You cannot live an openly righteous life and not become the scorn of unbelievers. It will happen because righteousness heaps coals on their head and brings into the light the darkness which they desperately cling to. As the scripture says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It is a simple equation. It's almost identical to 2 times 2 equals 4. Both are objective realities that are a part of the created order as God has made it. Those who are of the flesh and whose portion is in this life hate those who are not of the flesh and whose portion is the new heavens and the new earth precisely because the new heavens and the new earth is wherein righteousness dwells. It's very simple. But it only works if you will live openly and boldly as one who loves God, who has been crucified to the world and its lusts, and who is willing to endure the cross of being hated by that world, and yet who's willing to look upon that hatred and despise its shame and endure it. When you're willing to live like that, the antithesis between you and the unbelievers around you, it will rise up to the fore. But we often find ourselves hoping that we can sort of duck our heads and push through our interactions with the world without them knowing how much we're really not like them. Because we don't want to be hated. As adults, we often lovingly chuckle at teenagers we know who are going through that awkward stage, right, of, of wanting to be accepted by their peers and being terrified of rejection. But most of us haven't really outgrown that. As a, adults, we've simply shifted from caring what people think about our clothes or our musical preferences or whether we can make them laugh enough to whether or not they will find out that we believe their crude jokes are an abomination, that we discipline our kids with a rod, that we believe that God has the right to determine how many children they and their spouse will have, that that divorce that they are considering really is sinful, and that we believe it's contrary to the Lord's will for them to spend an entire Sabbath day immersed in sports entertainment. We don't like conversations where what God has to say on those matters will kind of come to the surface between us and the unbelievers around us. Unbelievers give their opinion all day long on things without any hint of embarrassment whatsoever or hesitation. 
all the time. Every time I get on a, on a work call where we are sort of talking as a team, the, the unbelievers on the call will give their opinion on everything under the sun, and they don't expect the slightest bit of pushback. And yet, but as believers, we're terrified of having to speak up in one of those conversations because we know that their opinion will be accepted and is not going to be uh, persecuted. If we're to give ours, we know what we're going to get in response. We know what's coming. But we ought not to be this way. Why? Because what has the text shown you, Christian? That you have every reason for courage in the face of potential opposition. There is no hatred, no persecution, no disdain or mockery that can befall you in this life that is not inscribed on the sword of the one who will judge the enemies of his people. That King Jesus watches every interaction between his bride and the world who hates her and every injustice like the names of his people, is written upon his breast. None of them will go unavenged. We could not have a more qualified king to vindicate us on that great day. If right as someone was about to mock or scorn us for the sake of Christ, if we could just pause and, and, and up in the sky, in the clouds somewhere, on, on a big projection screen, we got to watch the horror of the judgment that Christ will enact upon those people, then the sting of their scorn would, would hurt very little. It would kind of roll off of us like a, a leaf that casually falls onto our shoulders. It would be as nothing if we could see what is coming in eternity. So then live in such a way that unbelievers know very clearly which king you belong to and ensures that Christ will have something to gloriously avenge on your behalf. The arrows of their persecution are nothing but fodder for Christ's vengeance. And the punishment of those things is what will usher us into everlasting rest as the Lord of glory, unlike Saul, rides out and makes his eternal cosmic kingdom forever secure. Finally, if you are here as an unbeliever, touch not the apple of God's eye. There are many wonderful things about being able to come into the public assembly as an unbeliever. You are, of course, around the most glorious message that has ever been conceived of in the minds of man. And originally, it was not even conceived of in the mind of man. It was conceived in God's mind, and you get to hear it every single Lord's day. You could not ask for a more glorious position to be put in as an unbeliever. Think of the countless millions who, in God's sovereignty, were born in such a place where they were never going to hear the gospel. That wasn't an accident. And yet you were born and are brought to hear that gospel every week. Every week. What a wonderful thing. But it carries with it a great danger. Because you are in such close proximity to the thing which the Lord cherishes above all else, then your interactions with God's people will be under great scrutiny. And if you are to grow up and to reject and to despise the gospel, and as I heard an interview with some people this week who grew up in a church and took great delight now as adults in getting to mock and scorn the way in which they were raised, oh, that made me tremble because of what's coming. Do not, do not waste this gospel that comes to your ears week after week. The judgment of the final day is horrible. I'm not going to sugarcoat it for you. I think the texts I read were pretty graphic. But there is hope for you because there is a Lord Jesus and he was slain for the transgression of sinners just like you. Come to him. Come to him. Come under the reign of the most glorious king in all the universe. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, and here I'll ask, I hope that you caught the connection between what Austin preached and the Psalm 44, the call to worship. Because this is quoted from Psalm 44. Paul says, for your sake. We are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This is the plight of the people of God. The question was, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? These things? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So where do we see the love of God in Christ Jesus most clearly? Well, it's obviously in the giving of His Son on the cross for our sins. We might even say that at the cross... God placed His own Son, whom He loved, under the ban so that He might spare us. And the Lord's Supper is a weekly reminder of what God has done in the past. And the fact that what God has done in the past gives us great hope for what He will do in the future. God has not changed. The same God who gave His Son for us is the same God who keeps us now. And so as we contemplate the cross and the crucifixion and the body of Christ keep that in mind this is what God has done for us nothing can separate us from that if he would do that nothing can stop him from saving us eternally and bringing all of this to a consummation and so I read now from Matthew chapter 26 as they were eating Jesus took bread and after blessing it broke it and gave it to the disciples and said take Eat, this is my body. So in the breaking of the bread, we see Christ, His body broken. But we also hear Christ saying to His people, Take, eat, this is my body for you. Our salvation is here. Now there is also the warning Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And so we must bring our hearts and our minds to, to the cross, to Christ beyond the elements, to the thing that they signify, the body and blood of Jesus Christ. So as the elements are passed, give yourself to the meditation of Christ crucified for sinners and God's giving up of His Son for us, and then we'll come and we'll have communion with Him and with one another together.